0: Hey, what's going on? It's Jeremy Tho, marketing director of 3PL Systems and host of 3PL Live. Excited to share an episode with Matthew Leffler. Matthew is a really interesting voice over on LinkedIn. He is a lawyer, talks a lot about law, supply chain, and he also talks a lot about uh, non-disclosures, non-competes, and these agreements that we sign when we start a new job that really mess us up when we want to leave the company. It happens a lot in the, in the world of sales reps for freight companies. A lot of the times the freight sales reps wants to bring their customers to another brokerage. And a lot of the times the sales reps sign something that they can't actually move their accounts over. So just be careful of what you sign when you start a new job. Hope you enjoy this interview. I have a dog actually here too, as well. He's uh, my homie, Dolomite. He's around here somewhere, <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyways, uh, Matthew, thanks for coming on to 3 pla I'm excited to, to speak to you. You have a very interesting career um, in law and then also in supply chain. So I thought it was really interesting. I like the content on LinkedIn. But for those that uh, don't know you, would you mind just uh, just introducing yourself?
1: Well, thank you, Jeremy. So it, it's exciting to be here. As you mentioned, my name is Matthew Leffler. I've been in the supply chain now for about a decade, a little bit over that. I've been a lawyer before that. and I've been practicing law since 2010. Uh, the real story of my, my time in this industry is my father was a roadway guy back in 1976. Mm. And so this is before deregulation. This is when the trucking companies were heavily unionized. They were very consolidated. And in those days, there was really three big trucking companies, yellow roadway and consolidated freight. And so dad was in the roadway space for a long time and eventually got into the aftermarket, started his own company in the early 90s and became a maintenance provider. So I got to watch my father travel all across the world, uh, all across the United States, really doing maintenance. And then I joined up with his firm in 2012 and got to grow the business and learn about over-the-road trucking, LTL, truckload, everything that comes on a truck, which is basically everything. Mm -hmm. And over the last few years, I've been getting into more of this content creation and conversations around the the state of our supply chain and the state of law.
0: It's interesting too, because there is like a a market for the content behind it, which is it's really interesting because, like, maybe, like, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that this would have been, like, where we're at as a society with, like, marketing and, like, making, like, everything digital. But it makes a lot of sense. Like, I look at almost, like, Elon mentioned that Twitter was, like, the time or, like, the, you know, like, the digital square, yeah, uh, town square. I feel like LinkedIn is that way with, like, a community now. It's, like, this place where people almost just, it's like a mini YouTube where people go to there to learn and they want to, like, learn information about, like, how to stay out of trouble, which... Which like they probably love your content for that reason, because <laughs> it's
1: it's a great, it's a great uh, yeah. point, because the reality is that brands want to know where their customers are. They right. want to meet their customer, where the customer is. And Amazon did that great idea of saying, you don't have to go to the store to get the thing you want. You can find it on this website. We'll bring it to your house Mm -hmm. and bringing the content to the audience where the audience is. I think it's fantastic. I mean, looking at Twitter as an example, there are so many people that are there that are looking for content. They're looking for something to engage them. And if you have a good voice, if you have a good message, if you have a good bit of information, you can meet their customer in that spot. And that's that's what makes this new kind of age of marketing and communication so interesting because everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket. Mm -hmm. and when they're not on that supercomputer in their pocket they're in a supercomputer in front of them and you can Mm -hmm. find your customer in all sorts of interesting places
0: yeah it's interesting because i actually just recently did my taxes for crypto and i was i mean i only had the w2 and some crypto taxes but i was still terrified because i didn't know what i was doing i didn't know how to compile like the information from like coinbase coinbase pro like all these different things so i watched like youtube videos some guy on there was like had a tax firm and like now, I mean, it's like one of those things where obviously like give away the free information and people will be stoked on you and they'll spread it. And then I think that it just makes you just more valuable, which is really interesting, though. I feel like some people haven't actually I was, I was listening to I'd mentioned before we actually started recording. There's a guy named Chris Walker on LinkedIn, and he grew this company, uh, Refined Labs, from like zero to 120 employees in a matter of like wow. three years. And it was all based upon this methodology of content creation doing like the, you know, the educational play, and then also like teasing out like copy and other channels as well for like a podcast. So it, it definitely works. It's very, it's very interesting. How did you, uh, just out of curiosity, and then I, then I want to get into some law stuff too, but I'm just fascinated because I don't talk to people that do this as well. And I think that the digital, digital natives versus like people, I would say like my father's generation, which I would say they're, they're more like uh, analog to some sort of degree, We're, nothing wrong with it, record players are awesome. But just like your your thoughts on, like, how did you get into this? Like, how did you figure that out?
1: You know, it was experiment. I love to experiment. And when I was running a company called VHub, an asset sharing platform, mm-hmm. I was trying to find a way to market the product in a different way. And I thought, I love to interview people. I love to talk with them. So it started off with just using Zoom, recording mm-hmm. conversations, and then having someone do some small edits and then putting them out there as these short little vignettes. And that was more valuable and did more work for me than any trade show ever did. Mm -hmm. Because now you got to know more about the people behind the company. You got to know about the people that I'm interested in or or the companies working with. And so that kind of was the initial experiment. Then our our marketing coordinator went on maternity leave. And so I didn't have anyone to help me make them. And so I started making my own things, short little videos, short explainer things. And I always find it fun to demystify something. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of stuff in the last couple of months on things like non-competes and non-solicits, because these are things that are so complicated and they're so frightening and they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be. And that was kind of what drove me to do it. And then the positive re-encouragement uh, the people coming and saying, Hey, I like that, what you did, keep doing it, keep, keep it up. And that was enough to continue this process. And it's been kind of evolved from there. And now yeah. I do. Interviews and I do all sorts of different things.
0: It's cool. You do have a very good voice, I will say, and it's (laughs) uh, got a good personality. And yeah, I think that it's bringing value to the market. I feel like anytime you're just you're you're leading with like you know I'm not trying to get anything from anyone, but hey, if you want to hire me, cool. Like that's that's the way I kind of like work as well. And I think that that's the way to go because I think a lot of times like older executives they want to see like hey, how did that specific podcast relate to this specific dollar amount? And I'm getting better at like you know, I finally got our Google Analytics hooked up and I'm like looking at like how many page views and now I can start monitoring other signals that I wasn't, I was a little bit blind to before because it's hard to like measure attribution like these days, like with like the way like everyone wants an MQL or they want something specific. So I well, just you, think-
1: Your intuition kind of guides you. And I will say, uh, yeah. I appreciate the comment on my voice. I'll, I'll tell a quick little thing. I have to practice quite a bit. When I grew up, I had a speech impediment. I stuttered. And I continued to stutter. I took years of speech therapy to overcome that speech oh, wow. impediment. And it's something that I, I really want people to realize that you can overcome anything. And it's just practice, 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 practice. And eventually it'll go away, hopefully, if you, if you do it enough.
0: No, I could actually see you like in like some like Seth Rogen film or something like that. You got a funny personality.
1: <laughs> I think law and maintenance does that to you. I mean, you just with both law and supply chain generally is you can't opt out of either of these things. So eventually you get to a place where you're just, you can grin and bear about anything.
0: I, I totally agree with you. I feel like it, most people in the supply chain, they they stumbled into it somehow and then they can never leave. Either you can't, you
1: can't escape. No one, no one tells you that when you get into it. But the reality is everything is supply chain, every retailer, every warehouse, every distribution, every manufacturer, it comes on a truck, or maybe came on a boat and then it got into a truck or was on a boat and then a train and then a truck, but it comes on a truck.
0: Before we actually get into a little bit more of this law stuff I am curious since we are talking a little bit about the ocean a little bit about trucking in general. I've been reading from like Freightways. I read an article recently from Craig Fuller saying something about like a recession coming. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not an economist, and I'm sure you're not either. But do you, have you heard this as well, like a freight recession and a possible, like the Fed hiking interest rates might cause a little bit of a more of a recession in the regular economy?
1: Yeah, I think that trucking is always the bellwether. We are the first ones impacted by anything, whether it's good news or bad news. And mm-hmm. to speak kind of to the the point of a potential down—I uh, wouldn't say recession. There is a like, there's a possibility of recession maybe next year, uh, but what we see is that the spot rates are kind of getting a little bit lower, and contracts are and tender rejections are are you know coming down. So what ends up happening is there's not as much consumer demand, and so what we've seen at least in some some metrics is warehousing has gone up. And warehousing in our kind of economy is all about just-in-time fulfillment. So warehousing is you have it, you get rid of it, you get more, you get it, get rid of it. If mm-hmm. you're building up inventories, it means you're not selling it. Sure. So there is this path, I think, of less consumer demand for certain types of products. I don't know how significant it's going to be. This industry is always in the place where if there's a small downturn, there's companies that are going to go bankrupt. This just the nature of this industry. That's what fragmentation does.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It it was like a very global economy where a lot of cheap stuff came from China. And it seems like now with like all this tension with like Russia and Ukraine and like there's certain products also, I heard like neon, like which is like a component, I think to build like microchips comes from like Ukraine. So it's, it's, it's interesting, like we're starting to build more microchips, it looks like within the US like factories, but it's not gonna, it's gonna be a while. But I think that that's smart because like there's certain things that like, you know, microchips are used with everything. We want something like that, like as a advantage where we don't have to rely on some other trading partner, I think, for something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are, you're kind of allowed to, but everything is, a, it's a global supply chains, many, many supply chains, and everything is interconnected. So one problem in one remote place may not make sense to have all these downstream effects, but it certainly do. And we're seeing still with big weights on the, the West Coast, a part of Long Beach, places like that, where there is still you know, not enough materials, or enough people to move things off the boats, there's still a lot of challenges in our supply chain for sure.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's it's interesting. So what's the deal with, um, you'd mentioned something on LinkedIn recently about this driver. I think it starts today, right? This International Driver Check Day.
1: Yeah, so this is international uh, a check that goes on at once a year, it's 72 hours. And what basically happens is every single commercial vehicle is inspected. And that comes in, they, they can't get every single one, but there's about 40 to 50,000, maybe 60,000 that have. It's a big number. And the thing that I, I always go back to is that when these are happening, the focus this year is about wheel ends. So wheel ends are your your tires, your brakes, your brake chambers, your lug nuts, your wheel seals, all these different components on the axles. That's about 25% of what goes out of service. The thing that's surprising to so many people is one in six of these vehicles is gonna fail. One in six, one in seven are not safe to operate on our roads. And this is what happens when you defer maintenance. There's not enough inspectors, obviously. And when people aren't doing preventative maintenance, they're not catching these things. And it's a, it's surprising. People think it's like an aircraft. It's nothing at all like an aircraft. It is not maintained anywhere near that level of sophistication.
0: That's terrifying.
1: The, the goal thing is it would basically make a vehicle stop working. So it might right. cause a, you know, it's not usually like a wheel's gonna run off and, and have some catastrophic event. But it does give an idea of how delicate the supply chain is. There's not enough drivers, or at least there's not enough retention of drivers. And the mechanic challenge is the same thing. There's not enough heavy-duty mechanics. And so a lot of fleets will say, well, times are really good. Freight's moving really well. Let's not do maintenance now. Let's do it when things slow down. And then they wait till things to slow down. And like, we don't got any money. There's no money to fix it. And it's this vicious cycle. And the biggest trucking companies, or at least the most sophisticated ones, they don't have these kind of out-of-service problems. That's not what they deal with. It is generally going to be, some, of, some large carriers have these problems, but then also smaller carriers and fleets that just aren't focused on maintenance.
0: Well, a lot of the trucking market, it's pretty fragmented, right? A lot of the, the LTL market's not so much. You got like, I don't know, t- 50 carriers. I don't know how many there are, but let's just say 50 carriers that are LTL. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the rest of the, the market for truckload, it's just a lot of guys that have less than what, like five trucks. And it's just a lot of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge we run into in this, I always like to use this as an example, yeah. but before deregulation, so deregulation happened in 1980. And just to mm-hmm. give your viewers or your and the audience some background, before deregulation, in order for you to move anything, you had to get a special permit from the government, and everything was given how much you're going to get paid for it. So you had dedicated lanes. it was highly controlled, think almost like you'd have with like cable companies today, like having mm-hmm. the ability to have that kind of level of control. When deregulation happened, the goal was to remove $8 billion of cost. And the way you reduce cost is you make people paid less typically. So a driver back in 1980 was making an average $38,000. Adjust that for inflation. It's 120 grand. What do drivers make today? $50,000, $60,000. So what you have is a bunch of small companies competing with each other for moving things at a very low margin. I mean... Trucking companies, when you look at their operating ratio, that's the number that a trucking company will take in terms of revenue and how much they have to spend. Historically, they're about 95%. So they make a buck, they spend 95 cents. This is a low margin business. to your point, the LTL, LTL is really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. And because it's so hard to do, you don't have nearly as many players. It is a much more uh, consolidated business. And their operating ratios reflect that. You have someone like Old Dominion, one of the most profitable trucking companies that has ever existed. So these, these challenges is kind of what gives you these, these massive fragmentation in the business
0: yeah that's that's really interesting so the you would imagine that the the LTL carriers they're they're pretty set i would imagine on a maintenance like you mentioned earlier right so it's these smaller guys that sort of maybe need more help to make sure that they're they're doing their maintenance on time i have a, i do have a question with you as well i've heard something that there is like a driver shortage but then i've also read reports that like it's not a it's like a optimization of time like it's like uh six and a half hours like 40 percent of their time is not driving essentially yeah. They're sitting there waiting and not getting paid. So that sounds like that is a, a big bottleneck as well. Is that?
1: Yeah, there's a couple ways to look at this. Um, if you're talking about truck drivers in a private fleet, so someone like Walmart, their driver shortage is not really a shortage. They can, they have a waiting list for people who want to work with someone like them. The biggest thing in our, in our industry is driver retention. So in many cases, big trucking companies will hire 10 people, and they'll lose 11. They'll lose 12. They'll lose... 100% of the people they hire in a given year. And the reason for that is very, it's, it's multifaceted. It can be a combination of compensation. It could be equipment. It could be they can't find bathrooms when they're going to a shipper's location. It could be they can't find parking, the safe parking at night. So it is not as easy of a job as people think it is. And in the, the LTL space, they again don't have the same retention issue. So the estimates on driver shortage, I've heard numbers up to 80,000. I don't think we really do have a shortage. Um, That use of the word shortage was used recently with trying to make it so that drivers under the age of 21 could operate in interstate commerce. So getting, because before you couldn't do that. Now, getting younger people into the profession to drive interstate, the argument was, we need more people. Let's get the young people to do it. But I don't think that's the issue. I think they're talking about throwing more meat into the grinder. The challenge is the job isn't what it used to be. It's not a, a path to a good middle class life. You're not going to put kids through school driving a truck right now as you're a dedicated carrier in many circumstances. So this idea of a driver shortage is more, in my opinion, about the quality of the job itself. Because the companies that have that pay well or that have the good you know, time home and everything they're not having the same issue. It's hard to tell somebody. You're going to be gone from home for 270 days a year, and you're not going to make more than $80,000. Like, not many folks want to do that. And I'm telling you, the day that DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats can pay more than an over-the-road company can for driving, all those commercial drivers are going to immediately pivot because they've been changing jobs every single year for the last 15 years.
0: Well, it's crazy because it seems – I read a lot of reports that they don't get paid when they're sitting there waiting for the the freight to be loaded. No, they don't. Yeah, that sounds sounds just like not a very, like who would, no one in their right mind would be okay with that.
1: When you're paid by, so that's the reason, why are they paid by the mile? Because it's cheaper than paying them by the hour. Um, That's the whole reason. If they had to pay them by the hour, it'd be much more expensive. And everybody in that supply chain would be incentivized to make sure the driver is dealing with efficiencies. So this idea of sitting at a warehouse uh, not driving, not being paid. There are types of fines that can be given to a shipper for making a driver wait, but that's still a challenge. It's an administrative task. Maybe a broker can collect that money. Maybe the driver can collect that money. Maybe your platform, like a convoy or an Uber freight or something like that, can help collect that money. But it's complicated, it's not easy. So a lot of companies are exploring things like paying additional money for weekends or evenings or paying for hourly pay or paying you as an hour, because you have an ELD, it knows exactly how many hours you're working. So I think you're right. I mean, if if there's a combination of taking the ELD data to pay someone hourly, or at least guarantee a minimum amount, they're going to be paid by the hour, that might help solve some of the retention things. So to your point, who wants to wait for 10 hours and not get paid?
0: No yes. one. This It's no be one's very frustrating, I and mean, it, it just causes bad behavior. I mean, it, it, I don't know if it does on their end, but you would think that it would just cause the wrong outcomes because then you're just probably pissed off because you've been sitting there for hours, and you're probably going to be, like, more likely to rush afterwards because you're trying to catch up on time. Well, so-
1: and the thing is, like, your hours of service are still so calculated. Like, you're on duty not driving. So if you're sitting there not being paid, you're still on duty. You might have to do something. So you finally get processed through, you get your freight, and now it's 2 o'clock in the morning, got four hours to drive. Well, you drive for those four hours because that's what you're paid by. You're paid to drive. That's one of these issues I think is interesting is the idea of governors on trucks to slow the speed down. And that's a great, there's a whole great reason why that's good. I mean, good for maintenance, good for tires, good for safety. But for drivers, it means you're probably going to be paid less. I mean, you save money on the fuel. I mean, that, that's great, but you're paid less because you can't go as many miles.
0: Yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like this whole entire thing and not having bathrooms as well. I, I don't understand like why are shippers being so weird with like not letting the drivers use the bathroom and why are they just being, it just seems like this is like, they all need to work together. And it, it, it's weird that the shippers aren't like realizing that they need the drivers. This <laughs> is such
1: a weird business. So to kind of look at what happens for a driver, um, they might show up to a shipper location. The shipper might have had bad experiences with drivers in those properties, and they had to maintain it or clean up after a big mess or something. And so they'll make a rule and they'll say, this is only for, only for employees. We're not going to have any driver bathrooms. And they'll say, well, there's a there's a travel center down the street. there's da, 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 all these different options. But the shipper doesn't want to pay to clean up the mess that a driver may purportedly make. But mm. the drivers that are good actors, need a restroom and they're trying to deliver they're doing the hardest job in the world safely delivering freight on time and undamaged and they get there and there's not a bathroom for them to use so there's guys like bob stanton who's on linkedin prolific on this issue and he'll post pictures of drivers who will send him where it says you can't use a bathroom here call out the shippers that are doing this but this is kind of the nature of it is if you own a shipper or you own a warehouse and you don't want to clean up the mess that a bunch of drivers make you ban them and it's not a great outcome i had mechanics mobile mechanics that would go to people's facilities and they'd say bathrooms are for employees only. And I'd go to them and say, okay, well, <laughs> I'm pulling the mechanic tomorrow. Does that sound okay? And like, don't do that. They go, okay. So is it available for my mechanic? Oh yeah, of course it is. Yeah. I get it.
0: Yeah. But this, this is the nature. It's almost inhumane to some sort of degree. It's like, okay, well, well you could drop off the load, but no, you're not going to use the bathroom. So yeah, it's- <laughs> and that's why we have this
1: issue. Our generation is rejecting <laughs> what has been so common in this industry for 20 or 30 years. It's not new. These problems aren't new problems. They're just, we have advanced technologies to communicate how awful the experience is. And if you make a bad experience for a driver, either they're gonna leave the industry, they'll change to a different trucking company, or they'll say, I'm not going back to that shipper again.
0: Convoy actually had something I read that they have like little like a reviews on each of the shippers, which I thought mm-hmm. was interesting, almost like a Yelp built in yeah. internally. Yeah, I guess is this stuff pretty common, you think, now?
1: Or absolutely. The idea that you can rate the performance of a shipper has been monumental. I know Uber does it, I, I know Convoy does it. And what the goal is, is to give a two-sided rating system to say, here's how the experience was. And if a shipper gets that data and they use it not to, you know, boost their own rating, but to say, let's make improvements on our experience for the driver. Because at the end of the day, every business is a combination of people, technologies, and processes. And your people are also working with the the critical suppliers that make your business work. And if you make it difficult for your critical partners to work with you, you're going to struggle to find people to move your freight. And I think it's a great thing. I mean, giving more visibility to the actual problems that we experience as drivers or mechanics or just regular people is a good thing.
0: Yeah. It, it's almost just the same as like, uh, you know, when software companies, when our customer experience, it's like the the customer is a, one of the, one of the pillars. It's like the driver and the mm-hmm. customer, they're all customers essentially. So yeah, it makes sense mm-hmm. that they'd want to optimize all those channels so that the, all their partners are happy, which is, seems like basic, like, I don't It's very like obvious to me, but it's, it's weird how like certain, certain things aren't obvious for whatever reason.
1: Human feelings <laughs> don't affect the bottom line until they do. And that's the thing we've learned is that now people realize that if you don't have good experiences for everyone who's a stakeholder, whether that's your critical vendors, your customers, or your employees, you will not be competitive. And in this market, in this environment, it is hyper-competitive for everything. It is a race to that doorstep. It's a race to that shelf. And if you make barriers by not giving good experiences, you will not be successful.
0: Yeah, it's. I have a question for you. So I have, I have a buddy that recently got laid off at this, at this company and he uh i think he signed something i don't know if it was a non-compete i was watching one of your videos and i got a little bit i didn't realize that there were so many different non-solicitation and there i didn't realize that there was nuance obviously there are but like i don't I don't know them myself i guess is what i'm trying to yeah. say and he he basically was working for this company but i think he had something on there where it was like you know where he couldn't go off and take his clients to another place but i was i was watching one of your videos and i thought it was really um a good point you'd made you you were saying something to the effect of like if you're a really good salesperson that you take your customers with you, because like mm-hmm. you're, you own the relationships and that the the vendor is essentially renting them. And I thought that was a right. a very interesting way to like, look at things. So like, what, what's the, um, yeah, like what's the deal with like some of these sales reps that work at brokers? So they, are they essentially usually getting into some sort of non-compete or non-solicitation?
1: Absolutely. So to give a little background on what we've kind of outlined so far. So these are documents called post-employment restrictive covenants. So they're, after you've left the job, it's a restriction. So it's a limitation of your liberty. And it's a covenant. It's a contract. And so these come in different flavors. The ones everyone is familiar with is a non-disclosure agreement. When you say, I will learn something about your business, I won't tell anybody. That's very typical. Very few people have problems with that. But Mm -hmm. then you get these two interesting ones, the non-solicitation agreement and the non-competition agreement. When I said in that video about like, Effective salespeople, you don't get to own my contacts. You get to rent them. You get to borrow them until I'm done because they're mine and they're follow me. And the non-competition agreement is essentially when an employer says, you can come work for me, but when you're done, you don't get to work with anyone else like me. And if you do, I'm going to sue you. And these documents are usually presented on the first day of hiring. They're in a Onboarding document. You have no time to review them yourself. And you certainly have no time to go to outside counsel and say, what am I getting into? But these documents generally are enforceable. They can go on for a year or two years and ban you from a geographic area, maybe not just your city, maybe not your county, maybe not your state, maybe the whole nation, because you're selling to everybody. And you basically make it so that it's harder to compete. And these documents, you're at will. We're all at will. They can fire us because it's Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And so these are very dangerous documents and they're very bad for companies. They're bad for employees. They're bad for customers and they're bad for shareholders. That's why I joined this movement called End Non-Competes. I'm vociferously against non-competes. However, if you want to have a non-compete, people should be paid for them. So I've had tons of times people say, Matt, sign this non-competition agreement. and I'll say, sure, I want $30,000. And they'll say, we don't want to give you $30,000. I don't want to sign your non-compete. <laughs> you say, well, all right, then that's just, let's just not, you go ahead and be an employee and we're not going to make you sign it. The non-solicit's different. The non-solicit's about not poaching former coworkers, not poaching customers. Same rules apply. It's got to be reasonable, has a time duration and a geographic expanse. But the thing about non-solicits is that your former employees or your former coworkers or your former customers can still come talk to you doesn't affect them, you can't proactively go out and say, come work for me or come come work as me. Let me be your agent. Let me be your broker. No. But if they come to you, they certainly can do that. I still don't like non-solicits. They are pervasive. There's over 30 million Americans that have signed some iteration of a non-compete or non-solicit. And I just think about my own kids. I got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Someday they'll get a job offer. And then that job offer will be a non-competition or a non-solicitation agreement. They'll come to talk to their father, and I'll say, we will not sign this stupid (laughs) stuff. But most people don't have access to that. And that's what the whole part of the armchair attorney was to help people understand. You don't need a lawyer to negotiate these things. You can do it yourself, just like you might want a sign-on bonus or more vacation time. You can say, I want less of this, or I want none of this. And companies will push back, and then you push harder. And they'll give up. There's been tons of times that I've been on teams where some of my coworkers have non-competes and non-solicits, and I don't. And it's not because I'm, uh, I'm special. It's because I just said, no, I'm not going to sign it. The worst thing that I hear about these days is you've already accepted the job. You're already working at the job. And you get a surprise non-compete or surprise non-solicit. They walk in and say, hey, uh, you got to sign this document today. You got to sign it today. And in that circumstance, what are you going to do? you're going to get fired. My advice, if I were to give people advice, and again, this is not legal advice, I get fired. I don't want to limit you. I don't want to limit anybody. I want people to have the ability to go work at places that they want to. And if the only reason you don't quit your job is because you have a non-competition agreement or a non-solicitation agreement, that sucks for everybody. That sucks for everybody.
0: It really does because it makes it very hard to go work somewhere else. If like you can't work in the industry with the, like the non-compete non solicit It seems like a, the the brokers too. A lot of the times, it's just like independent reps usually that have the relationships and the freights moving with some you know broker doing the actual job. So it, it just sucks that they they make it hard for them to actually like move their their uh, customers around.
1: It's anti-worker. I mean, this this is the whole point of these things is to weaken the other workers. It is designed to stifle competition. And it is designed to control somebody after they've left you. I use the example of like, if you're dating somebody and you say, well, you know what, it's not working out for either one of us. Let's go ahead and and go our separate ways. And your partner says, that sounds great. But by the way, you can never date anyone like me for the next year. We would (laughs) never, we would never in our personal (laughs) lives, put up with something like that. No way. But in the business context, we don't know any better. We don't know we can say no to that. It's absolute garbage. And the more we can talk about them and shine the light. A good example is there's a company called Four Kites. Four Kites uh, had a couple of people who quit. One of them was an implementation manager. She'd been there for six months, went to go work for Project 44, and they sue her. Jeez. Imagine you're at your business or you're at your house and a sheriff walks up to you and says, is this such and such? Oh yeah, it, it's it's Matthew Leffel. What can I do for you? You've been served. What are you going to do? You're going to go hire a lawyer? No, it is terrifying. It is terrifying and it is unethical in my opinion. And so Project 44 stepped in and they helped litigate against Forkites in this case. But it's horrifying. It's horrifying to see this kind of stuff.
0: It is really horrifying to like, I mean, I always like worry about it too. I have friends that are like were worried about being personally sued that were executives at different companies. And they were like, oh, shoot, if I get sued, it's going to drain my pocket. I don't have enough money to go fight a lawsuit. It's, it's terrifying Like when when that sort of stuff happens to you. It's nice that Project 44 stepped in. And I, I bet this stuff happens probably all the time, right? People- Oh, it does.
1: It does. I mean, it, it usually starts off with a cease and desist letter. So you get a letter in the mail saying, do not do this, fire this person. they under contract. And every employer- that you have after you've left a company, it's going to ask you a question. Do you have any post-employment restrictive covenants? And you're going to have a letter on your record because they're not going to hire you. And if you do have them and you don't disclose it and they find out, they fire you. And I've even seen contracts that say, if you fail to disclose existing contracts, non-solicits, non-competitions, and we find out, we are extending our non-solicitation from 18 months to 24 months. And you're going to agree to it because you signed the document. And we, we think like, well, maybe we sign it. We don't understand it. It goes to court. Maybe the judge will throw it out. Maybe they will. No. Almost every single one of these types of contracts has a clause that says, if it is found to be invalid, the court will make that contract as close, make it valid under the circumstances the court would allow. So let's say it's 24 months and the court says, well, we only accept 12 months. They don't throw the whole thing away. They say, we're going to make it 12 months. So you've just sued, you've been sued, you've lost, and now you're, you're stuck. It's, it's despicable. And that's why I made armchair to begin with. Because I, There's things that you see and you go, gosh, someone should say something.
0: Absolutely. So when do you recommend, I guess, if you're, if you are like in the, in the process of like Obviously not advice or anything, but just out of curiosity, like how, how do you like recommend, like when you're going, like if you got like a new job, right? People that are scared to negotiate for whatever reason, let's just say that they don't want to like ruffle the feathers and they don't want to mess up the deal that's already been made. And I think it's good to yeah. to oh, have yeah. a, the a mentality of walking away from anything also, but like, how did, when do you recommend like negotiating? You just out of curiosity, do you, do you do it like right when you got the offer or like, do you do it so, like over the phone or like, like in an email? Or? That's a
1: great question. <laughs> and, and, and this is just negotiation. I think it's yeah. helpful to, you know, one thing we need to train people how to negotiate. We need to do it. it it's not a dirty word. And I've heard, like, I've used to do labor law. I used to represent employees and, 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 and companies in some cases. And very often it, it's women who aren't negotiating contracts. Now, men might on compensation, but on these post-employment things, they don't know how to do it. So the number one thing I tell people is if you're looking to get a new job and you're talking to a hiring manager, the best thing in the world to say is, look, I think this job sounds fascinating. I can't wait to interview for it. But can you tell me a little bit more about the position? Uh, first, what, what does it pay? And then are there other things that I might have to sign, exec- execute to be part of the team? Maybe some sort of a a post-employment restrictive covenant. And the moment you find out, because every one of them will say yes, if they they have, they're going to tell you yes, usually they hide them because the HR people don't really know a lot about these things. They know that they're supposed to be signed. They don't know what the purpose of them is oftentimes. like I've had people that are mechanics that sign non-competition agreements knowing full well that non-comp is never going to be enforceable. But if you are presented with these documents, The number one thing to say, in my opinion, is why do you need me to sign this? Why why do I have to have them justify it to you? Because they don't know how to sell these things to other people. So oftentimes, you can just say, I want to look some, give me some time. At the minimum, you want at least a weekend to review these documents. And when you are in that position, I would say don't sign them and see if they'll hire you. And if you find out that they don't negotiate these things, you have to, you're not going to get the job. Move on. It's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. Now, if you really want that job, you really want to work there, ask for separate consideration. And separate consideration is money outside of the offer to be employed to sign that contract. Essentially, it means a sign-on bonus. If you're going to take me out of the market, I want some money for it. If you're going <laughs> to make me do something, you're going to pay me for it. And then the other three things you negotiate on these documents, how long does it go for? If they want it for four years or two years or whatever, go for six months. The way I've always told, I always think about it is one month for every year I work. I worked there for five years, I'll non-compete for five months. Like that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Not six months and you're blocked for two years. That's garbage. The next one is geographic area. If they want the whole world, narrow it down. Uh, I I live in Chicago. Let's do Chicago. Okay, (laughs) that's fine. And then the last one is what is the business? So in the non-competition agreement, what is the business I can't compete with you? In some cases, they don't even define what the business is. So you might be in a freight brokerage, and now you're working for a car dealership or truck dealership. You can't do it because the, maybe that non-compete is so expansive in how they define business, you can't do it. So I've, heard, I've seen this phrase of whatever we're currently doing or contemplating doing. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> it means anything. <laughs> dummy, I don't want that. So the main thing, I just negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. If you're presented with these things on the day of hiring, you've already done everything. The employer knows this. It's called a sunk cost fallacy. They know you've already committed to this. You've already done this. You've already made the deal. You're not going to walk away. Walk away. Don't be bound for the next year or two years because you have no idea what the next year or two years will look like. Your your employer is not going to guarantee you a job for a year or two years, but they'll certainly guarantee you a restrictive covenant for a year or two years. And this is why we have to be vocal about it can't accept the status quo because the status quo is bad it is bad for everybody
0: what do you think about too i I was wondering if like employees ever get fired for saying stupid shit like on linkedin or just saying something that's like off their brand and i don't think a lot of like companies have like actual like linkedin policies that encourage oh yeah dude to actually post
1: (laughs) i I i'll tell you a personal story i i had this happen to me I was going on freight waves. I was doing a thing about law stuff, and my my company says, "Matt, you need to get approval from marketing and and legal to do this." And I said, "No, I don't." And they said, "Yeah, you do." I go, eh, "Are you going to fire me? Are you going to write me up?" I go, "Well, no, but yeah." Then with none, you're not. Then no, I'm not doing that. There is this this weird thing that we see, and I think LinkedIn is a great example. of This is. We are watching this amazing transformation where people have used LinkedIn as their living resume, and it is the business platform. You don't do on LinkedIn what you do on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever else or TikTok, sure. but it's changing because the employer doesn't own LinkedIn. Microsoft does, and you can do whatever you want to do in your free time. And if an employer is uncomfortable with that, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That sounds so hard for you. That sounds like it's a really bad day for you as the big company with all the money. So I, I do agree with you, man. Like we're we're seeing a transformation and we want more voices. We want more people creating content. We want people to talk and, and actually express themselves and be creative.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I mean, I know that when I was really interested in kind of getting into content like a few years back, I was nervous that like I was going to say something fucking stupid and it was going to get used <laughs> against me and I was going to get fired. I mean, that was always in the back of my mind. I'm not going to lie. And it's funny. I talk about this story, actually, this one company, I won't say their name, but they, they had like a little bit, they were venture backed. It was a software company. It wasn't in the supply chain, but they, they basically wanted to have like a culture committee where they wanted to improve the culture of the company. So they said that this was like a safe environment and it was like a room like full of like 20 people. And they're like, so like, why do you like, someone like open up with like why they're, you know, what's wrong. And I was like, well, for one, like a lot of the people that I was working with, like my manager or my VP of sales, because I was at sales at the time. I was like, yeah, there a lot of the people that I work with are gone. Like my whole entire row got like, you know, let go in like a week. So I'm like, it's, it's a, a very shaky environment i'd mentioned a couple things and like literally an hour later like they're like oh you're fired or you're laid oh, off Oh man and like i didn't do anything but it had to have been you know from what i said and this particularly safe environment so i almost felt like i was set up and then i was just like well maybe that's almost just like my bad for like opening my mouth and thinking that anything's safe when it's not but
1: <laughs> well you know, uh, before i respond to that story i'll mention one, one quick thing on yeah. our back to our non-compete and non-solicits, it's important to also negotiate that if you get laid off, those contracts go away. Y- you should not be laid off and then still bound by these things. Oh, that, yeah, that's, that's a fair. Diff- yeah. But, uh, but to the point of like, yeah, employers can fire you for anything, man. Like you can <laughs> fire anybody for anything as long as it's not a protected reason. And as long as you can make a justifiable claim around why it was justified, You're that's the nature of this industry. So we need to make sure that when employers do that, or they want to try to control the way that you speak and the way you communicate, that we punish them for doing it. And you know, there's not many ways you can punish an employer for doing these stupid things. But the best thing is talent leaves. High production, high valuable people will not put up with bullshit like that. They will not. They have no bandwidth for that kind of stuff. And so you can have a mediocre organization, with mediocre people that are policing the words that we say. They will be destroyed by the market. They
0: will be destroyed, <laughs> and justifiably so. Absolutely. Justifiably so. Yeah, it is interesting. I do, I do think that a lot of people probably think that their company almost, back to your point a little bit ago, controls their LinkedIn. There's almost like this separation, like you said. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that people need to hear that they own their LinkedIn, not, not their companies.
1: Seth, so this is the thing that happens with companies on LinkedIn is that you will see who your most productive or prolific commentators are. And so if you're a company with a bunch of employees, and you have a couple people that are commenting and posting a lot, that company's page gets notifications. It says, here are the people in the organization that are doing things. And so if you're not a marketing person, but you're out there out marketing the marketing people because you have content or viewpoints that are more popular and more interesting or more engaging – that makes them uncomfortable. And so that is a real thing because on Facebook, you might link to your profile and here's my employer, but on LinkedIn, that employer is linked to you. And when you comment and you do stuff, that employer is watching you. And I've had plenty of times when people will say, Matt, uh, like, why are you posting at 11 o'clock in the afternoon when you're supposed to be working? It's like, this is the job. The, <laughs> the job is to make people know who I am. Like you talked about when we, before we, we jumped on here. You, you and I almost know each other, we never met before, but we see each other's content. We learn about them. This is how you open doors in the 21st century is you get to build relationships digitally. And so these companies that don't understand this, like, well, the only way that marketing works is you get a trade show, you buy a booth, you spend enormous amounts of money. You send a bunch of people there and you hand out socks and you hand out Mm -hmm. battery backups. And that is how we market. That is how we market. And I'll so take a picture next to the truck or the trailer. And you're like, okay, that sounds really dumb. That sounds like it's a dumb idea. Why, why are we doing that? Like, you're not supposed to ask that question. It's we do it this way. And anybody who has that mentality of we do it this way doesn't love the problem. They love the solution that they have. They don't love the problem they're trying to solve.
0: Or the other way they do is they they basically hire a bunch of SDRs or EEs and then have them phone call like do 100 cold calls with like a 1% success rate of a terrible pitch for someone that's that's not for someone that's not ready to buy from you that's not in the market. They're not that little group of people that are actually ready to buy. So then they're just ramming down their, like, crap that they don't want down their throats trying to book a meeting. Hey, you free Monday? You free Wednesday? Instead of just, like, providing them useful information and then occasionally speaking in what you do. And they'll they'll hit you up when the, when they're ready and they know, that they you know, if they need a TMS or a lawyer or whatever, Absolutely. You, you, you know.
1: It's Absolutely. Like, it,
0: it's so weird, though. I don't understand, like, what do you think that the disconnect is? Is it because, like, people don't understand that, like, this is the digital age now? Or, like, what...
1: I think it goes back to this stuff we talked about earlier about how do you prove that this soft marketing is effective? How do you prove that these podcasts, these conversations, these these posts provide real revenue on the other side? It's easy to say, well, we we did all these phone calls and that one phone call got this one customer and that one customer converted to this much revenue. And that's lifetime. It's easy to do that because that's why it's easy. Right. But the reality is, as you kind of outlined, is it, This is changing, and the way we measure it's changing. And you'd rather be a thought leader on an issue than the one who makes the most phone calls, (laughs) because the one who makes the most phone calls isn't generating the most value for the business. The person who's the thought leader who makes a level of expertise and adds a level of, of personality and personal engagement, that's value. That's real value, but that value can move from company to company because mm-hmm. the minute you build that brand, you become more valuable than most of the companies you work with. And that's this weird dichotomy <laughs> because employers <laughs> really like being stronger than you. They love when like you come to me for your bonus and for your vacation and for everything, but it's like what you're going out there and you're getting more views on your stuff than the company mm, it makes people uncomfortable.
0: It does. It's interesting too, because it's i've almost come to this conclusion where like if the company doesn't think the way i think and i have to explain it to them i mean granted if they're open-minded and they're they're willing to think about it and like be open to it i'm cool with that maybe but like if they're like if i have to go to explain to a bunch of analog executives why this works and then i know that i'm going to be set up for failure because they're going to pin me to some like attribution model that i can't necessarily prove mm-hmm. then then i'm gonna just well you, i guess you could look at stuff like hey how many website visits did 3PL systems or the armchair attorney have when they were podcasting versus when they weren't podcasting and then start looking at those like attribution channels like that i guess maybe
1: the, the, the best way <laughs> i've always looked at it is how quickly i get another job offer right like you want to, you want, it, you, want it, you want you challenge me in the effectiveness of what i do okay well the day that i decide that we're not going to do this anymore <laughs> what is the market going to pay for what, what, is, what am i going to do and that really does bring a level of, of sophistication expertise there because now you're you're not just saying, here's the revenue we generated through this podcast or this this conversation, but it's about this is what other people see the value in. If you don't see the value now based on what we see in this entire industry. I'm, I don't know if it's easy to communicate that. We see, like we was talking about before, but freight waves, has changed the way
0: absolutely we,
1: we market the supply chain and talk about the technologies and the players in this space. And it's only going to get faster and bigger because yeah, that's they, how this works.
0: They were the pirate ship. I mean, they literally paved the way for for all of uh, the creators around, which I think is really cool. I think it's a much more fun industry, like have with other people like yourself and Blythe. Like- life Brumley, yeah and she's all, awesome. all, all the people that are like talking and doing cool stuff so i, I think that, that 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 part of it's it's more it, it just feels more like a community and to me i feel like linkedin it took it a while it wasn't like it was like overnight linkedin was like this like prospering community that had like scale but i think that it does now and it's it's fun to be a part of and see like what it's become essentially i love youtube yeah. as well but i haven't yeah. really spent as much time on that channel yet just because one person and you know i LinkedIn seems to be the go-to.
1: Absolutely. I, I started to do, so like every truck driver, multi-homes. So multi-homing is essentially the phenomenon that you go to different places to find your loads, load boards, brokers, you may work directly with the shipper, same with maintenance people. I was working with all sorts of different types of intermediaries to do maintenance and then directly with customers. And I realized I was doing LinkedIn only. And I was like, man, I got to, I got to learn about other things. And mm-hmm. so I learned about this thing called StreamYard when I started doing LinkedIn Live things and that can push to Facebook. I'm like, maybe I should get my Facebook going again. And I said, maybe I should learn how Twitter works. So I got a Twitter handle. And what I realized, the same as we talked again before, I have to meet my audience where they want to meet me. There are some people that just will not go on LinkedIn for anything content related. There, there's this mindset that you know, 2% of people on LinkedIn will do anything, comment, post, engage, anything but other platforms they may. And so I started to do the streaming that would basically push it to different places mm-hmm. and I would just watch and see what happens. And I've done it for three weeks, four weeks. So I have no, I don't take any advice, <laughs> any advice from me, but what I'm collecting we, the data.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So um, what, what do you use for that? Uh... To post all those different platforms stream yard it-
1: so stream yard 20 bucks a month for three oh. things going automatically. You can do more and you can stream it to more things simultaneously. But what I typically do is I'll stream things to LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and then I'll take the recording and upload that to YouTube. Uh, I do think eventually doing live and going to YouTube live through this stream yard platform would be useful, but I don't have enough YouTube followers, so I'm like, it's like 50. 50-50 here. So I'm just, I'm figuring it out. But yeah, it's an interesting platform. It's, it's fun to learn.
0: What is it like going live? I usually do like all the recordings and then chop it up later. So I get, it's all just like different processes. I've oh, it's on- so much more fun. It's so <laughs> it- much easier,
1: dude. I used to like, <laughs> I, like, I gotta make it perfect. I gotta make sure I don't mess it up. But when you do it live, it's so much more forgiving. The thing right. I like the most about doing the live, especially on LinkedIn, is when you have audience members who will ask questions to you as you're doing it. Right. And then it becomes a, a participatory thing. What I have learned, though, is that once it's done being live, no one goes back and watches it. So if I upload a video directly, it's already been done. That will generally have more engagement and more looks after the fact than a live thing has. But there's different values to both of them. So that thing we talk about, with the, in, the international break stuff, um, or, uh, that was done pre-recorded. I recorded that and put it out there. But most of the stuff I do is live because it's so much easier. so much
0: easier.
1: I just press the button and then it goes.
0: The algorithm seems to push up the live uh, shows quicker too, I've noticed as well. Like the algorithm favors live. Well, I for think a good so. reason because it's it's more, you know, it's definitely more ballsy, which is cool.
1: <laughs> well, it's how do you compete with TikTok? I mean, these social media platforms are in a life or death fight with other platforms competing for your attention. Reddit, for example, has a big live thing now too. I- I have not streamed anything on Reddit live. I don't have any desire yet to do that, but I'll, I'll experiment. But TikTok changed it. They became like, we had Vine before, but there's these short videos and there's an appetite for them. And so I think all these platforms are like, well, video content matters, video content matters. And that's the push for so many. It's interesting too,
0: because some of the analytics on some of these videos, like you'll, you'll see them, they have like a very low view count potentially, but then they'll, you'll look at the number, and it's like, wow, someone watched this like one 20-second video like for like two hours or something like that. It's oh yeah, it's bananas. That,
1: it, it's <laughs> what I what I find fascinating is the um when you see total minutes watched. Like and, I used to play when I was like when I was a young man, I played World of Warcraft. Sure. And World of Warcraft would have how many hours you played, how many weeks you've played how many months you've played it's just fascinating to see the, the commitment you put into the, into the thing but you see that same stuff with videos like here's how many minutes how many hours have been totally watched over a, a, a five minute video about deferred maintenance it, it's fascinating it, it's amazing and it just proves the point that there is an appetite for the content that's being put out there
0: oh absolutely i mean if you, if you think about that even like if like marketing versus sales like you could either make like a hundred phone calls have like two conversations or someone could have watched that video for a couple hours, like total no. minutes. So I mean, to me, it's just kind of obvious that like, hey, like this is evergreen, doesn't go away. Like you're getting people to like trust you because you're mm-hmm. showing up every day and Absolutely. actually providing value. So it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me, but it's, I'm wondering if like this, this type of style will be like the next iteration of like sales reps potentially. I'm sure it will be. I hope
1: so. I hope so. I'd rather have that than a bunch of random messages about all (laughs) sorts of ways to adjust my insurance or a number of other things people might want to sell to me. I do find it useful because my kids, um, I have no videos of my father when he was my age. I have no videos. I have no idea what he was like other than a, a few static pictures. But I look forward to going back in 20 or 30 years and going, oh, man. I was so wrong about that. Oh, man, look how young and strong I look. Now I'm not. I, 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 just a couple of weeks ago, I ran a mile and it took me nine minutes. I said to myself, I know I was faster as a kid. And my mom had saved these old records of when I was in you know, grade school, in kindergarten. And kindergarten Matthew was faster than 37-year-old Matthew. <laughs> First grade and, and second grade Matthew would have lapped me. They would have lapped me. And it's just it's fascinating to see that that transition, that that time capsule. And so that's one of the pieces I love about this type of content because it is evergreen. You get to see what you were like, what you were thinking about in those given moments.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, thinking back of like the first recording of a podcast, it was nerve wracking a little bit. And like, how is this audio going to, is this audio going to work? Could they hear me? Am I going to have some sort of problems? I, you know, they're just all these little things that you think about, like when you're creating something new and I love that you experiment and try new things. And I love doing that as well. I like trying different things until I'm like, do I like this? Do I not like this? And constantly analyze stuff but like podcasting has been like one of the funnest things ever because you talk to other people about what they're doing and get all these learnings from like your world and and like all the it's it's really fascinating i think that that but if you don't start something i think a lot of people get stuck in these stages where they think about something and they overthink it and then Mm -hmm. you get like paralysis because you're you're not moving forward because you're scared to do something but i i have another last question for you before we, we wrap up but I know that you're out there marketing as well. And I, I think I love the marketing. I think the content's badass, but I, I'm just curious, like do you, what, what sort of CTAs do you use? Do you ever like go in there occasionally, like in a post and say, hey, like hit me up if you want, uh, like to use me for this? I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I don't practice, I am a lawyer. I am fully licensed. I don't practice law for clients anymore. I don't do that. So what I, what I do with my, this stuff, is really just to give educational things and to talk Mm -hmm. about things. The, The way I look at driving revenue for my business is advising companies, advising companies and management consulting on technology trends or maintenance trends. And the business was started three weeks ago. So this is brand new. I've been making content for a long time because it is cathartic to me. It is a way to express myself. I look at this more as an artist. I like the art of the creation. I don't Absolutely. like the monetization side of it. It, it makes me uncomfortable because lawyers ethically, we're not allowed to say, come be my client. I want to represent you. I want to saw, you can't do it. So we're trained. Don't do that. Your client comes to me. I'll help you, but I don't go to the client. And when the first week of my officially being on my own, I made a mistake. I, I I knocked up a coworker. I got my wife pregnant. And I learned that uh, we were actually having twins. And I oh. said, okay, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and we have twins coming. I don't know that podcasting as a full-time job is a viable path. And so I will likely find a role within an organization in the next few weeks. And I'll continue to do this stuff because I love talking about issues that inspire me or people that inspire me. But that's the, the, the answer is I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at the making money part of it, but we'll figure it out. I do.
0: This is a great, this is a great format though. I, I I believe it's long tail to be honest. Like I, I think that these things probably build, at least my intuition tells me that these things don't take off over they they take a lot of work and a lot of time. And then after a while, it's probably like a sort of an exponential curve or something is the way it probably works.
1: I think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly how it would work. And I just think that I don't have that long of a (laughs) runway with uh, (laughs) with twins coming. I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't think so. But to your point is there is an audience that wants to understand these things. They want to look at different types of issues that it's not easy to find answers to. And as long as we're able to create content that people find meaningful, that's, that's amazing. And I don't, Look at it as a, at least for myself, as a revenue stream. I look at it as a way to give back and to just take the training that I received and provide something to somebody of value.
0: Yeah, no, same. I, I look at it just like I'll just make myself look bad in order for you to get value. There's <laughs> something, you know, and I think that a lot of people just want, want to look cool a lot of the times, so and I don't really care anymore, you know, like I feel like. Now that you're, I'm getting older, it just it's just about like the life lessons and about like how you could get someone to like not make some of the mistakes, you know, we did or I did.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm the same. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I agree with you 100%.
0: <laughs> yeah, but um, I appreciate the time if people want to, I guess, reach out to you for hiring you for armchair attorney. How, how would they reach out?
1: Yeah, you can find me at uh, armchairattorney.com. You hit Matthew at armchairattorney.com. Uh, LinkedIn, Matthew Leffler on Twitter, armchairatty. Uh, it's the abbreviation for the word attorney. And then I have a YouTube channel. You just look up Armchair Attorney. You'll find me. I like making content about my family, my faith, my world of law and supply chain and whatever else people are interested in.
0: Absolutely. I love the conversation. Thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. Thanks for sticking around to the end. If you're new to 3PL live, I appreciate the support. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Matthew Leffler. If you come back, I appreciate you as well. And thank you for listening. Always try to provide as much value as possible and uh, provide interesting guests and talk about all things about digital marketing, a lot about freight supply chain and just anything of uh, interest. Thanks.